And uh, just to re reiterate that if you're fairly new to Cornerstone, we'd love you to join us in the back room there for morning tea with the, the elders and a chance to get to know you. And we're going to take an opportunity to tell you a bit about our church, our history, where we've come from and where we're going. So if you're a bit new to Cornerstone, please come and join us. Yeah, there's morning tea for everyone, but there's a special morning tea if you're you find you in the back room there, so please, please uh, come and join us there. And uh, let's congratulate Leah Richardson, who's now married, not married, he's <laughs> <laughs> uh, getting married to Tim Still, and he's one of the oldest consultants. So. <laughs> and please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, we are continuing our series today on Revelation 1. Next week, Elder Derek Clark will be preaching from Psalm 40. I'll be in Perth next week. And then Soul Church Pastor Paul Hutchins will preach the following week. And today we'll be finishing off chapter 1. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the United States President, who led the United States during World War II, said in his first inaugural address in 1933, and you'll know these words, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And we see many Christians who are debilitated by fear. Fear of the unknown. Perhaps you're debilitated by fear of your own unknown future. Will I get through school? Will I get through my education, my training, university? Will I find a good person to marry me? Will I be able to have children? If I do, what sort of a world will my children grow up in? Will I be able to look after myself and my family? Will I reach old age or will I die of some kind of accident or sickness? Will I have enough money to retire? These are the, the kinds of fears that we might have as individuals facing an unknown future. And I know that there are many of you here who have fears for your nation. Will there be war with Iran or China, Russia or North Korea? Far worse, will our nation continue to make wicked laws, legalising the killing of unborn children, exposing our daughters, our sisters, the vulnerable to prostitution, normalising sexual perversion and the confusion of gender. And I read in the paper yesterday that hundreds of children are now presenting at the Royal Melbourne Hospital claiming gender dysphoria and are being given drugs and face surgery for confusion over gender and the terrible wars that we are making at the moment have a lot to answer for them. Will our nation make laws that will expose our elderly, our physically and mentally frail to euthanasia? Will we continue to become ever more barbarous as a nation? And there are some of you who have fears for the future of the church. Will the Australian church survive 
the next generation, because the church is only ever one generation away from disappearance. Will young Australian Christians take up the reins? Will young Christians in our own church take up the reins and take the church forward and into the future? Or will the Australian church be choked by worldliness and materialism? These are the kinds of fears that we have for the future, for the unknown future. And what you need to know is that the first Christians also shared exactly those same kinds of fears. And Christians have always faced those same kinds of fears. And in this place of temptation to fear and this place of being debilitated by fear, our Lord Jesus says to us, and we saw this last week in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And this morning, I want to look at three reasons why we should not be afraid as we look ahead to an unknown future. Three reasons, not my three reasons, but three reasons that Jesus Christ himself gives as to why you must not fear for your own future, you must not fear for the future of your nation, your church. Jesus gives us three reasons why. And I want you to have your Bibles open, please, and see those reasons for yourself in Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. We're going to finish the chapter this morning. Firstly, Jesus says, do not fear, because he is the first and the last. You see that there in verse 17? Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And it echoes what he had already said in verse 8. Look there at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Do not fear, Jesus says. I am the first, I am the last. What he means is, I was there before the universe began, and I will be there when the universe wraps up. I have seen everything. I see everything. I see everything to come. And I stand before, after, and above all history. In fact, as we go on in the book of Revelation, we see that he writes history. History is his story. In Psalm 139, David said, Your eyes saw my unformed body in your book. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed or the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were none of them. Please listen to that. If, if you are looking ahead to the future, an unknown future, and you are feeling anxious about that, and you are feeling frightened for that, listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying in his word 
in your book, said David. Every one of my days has been formed. Every one of my days has been ordained. Jesus has written your future, even before you were born. So do not be afraid. He is the first and he is the last. He has written the good things into your future. In the same way that he wrote John the Baptist's life and his good preaching was all written in advance. That's why we see it foretold 400 years before in the prophet Malachi. And Jesus has written the hard things into your life. Remember how God foreordained that his people would spend more than four centuries as slaves in Egypt. That was written for them. Their future was written for them, that hard future. And he's even written the bad things, like Joseph's brother's betrayal of Joseph. You think that that was an accident of history? Was it an accident of history that Joseph's brothers betrayed him and by so doing sent him ahead into Egypt to prepare to save the Holy Family, God's family? Not at all. He is the first and the last. That means he written the future of each and every one of you. And he's written your past. And that, that means this, that we should confess our bad behaviour and our terrible decisions of the past. And we should repent of our bad behaviour and our terrible decisions of the past. And we should regret our bad behaviour and our terrible decisions. But we must never despair of them. We must never despair of the bad decisions we have made in the past. We should never be frightened of them. We should never be frightened of the consequences of them. Never think that there is one part of your life that has been outside of the will of a good and sovereign God who was there from the beginning and who will be there at the end and who has written every one of your days in his good book. Never think that he cannot or will not use even your past mistakes and your terrible decisions for your good and even for the good of those around you. And this is so important because maybe it's just because I'm getting to a certain age, but you start to think back, don't you? You start to reflect and you start to, then your kids are now leaving home and you start all the bad decisions you make just seem to become so clear to you. And it's so easy to be crushed by a sense of despair and, and what's going to happen as a result of bad decisions I've made in the past. But Jesus, do you hear what Jesus is saying? When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last, I am the one who was and is and is to come. He is saying, I'm Lord of history and I'm Lord of your history. And I can even take your mistakes and use them for good. 
Can God use our evil? I hear you ask. Can he really use my mistakes? Can he use the, 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 the terrible decisions I've made in the past? Can he use my wickedness? Well, if my righteous deeds are filthy rags, then that's all he's got to use, isn't it? That's all he's got to use. Because even my best deeds, even the best things I've done, have been marred and tainted by sin. So, if you are frightened because of the future, you're frightened by your past mistakes, that's because you don't know that Jesus is the first and the last. And so past mistakes gnaw at you as unredeemable calamities. And so you lie awake at night planning and controlling and scheming to, to fix things and to, to try to work out how you can fix things yourself. Or like Elijah, you run away. And certainly when we are overcome with anxiety and fear, it's hard to serve others, isn't it? I know how hard it is to serve others when you're consumed with anxiety and fear for yourself. And so listen to what Jesus says here. Do not be afraid, brothers and sisters. Do not be afraid, because I am the first and I am the last, and I have got history in my hands. Second, do not fear because Jesus is the living one. You see that there in verse 18. Do not be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. Now think back to the, the, the first Christians who read the book of Revelation. What were, they what were they frightened of? We've already talked about some of the things that caused them fear and anxiety. But certainly one of the things they were frightened of was death. And not just death, but all the, the dreadful things that lead up to death. Frightened of being misunderstood. Frightened of being maligned, ostracized from your community, from your family. Frightened of losing an income because of your Christian faith. Frightened of prosecution and fines. Frightened of arrest and trial and conviction. Frightened of torture. Frightened of death and the horrible death. The death sometimes of crucifixion or the death of being thrown to the, the wild animals in the arena and hundreds of Christians died in that dreadful way. And so, the, the men and women and the boys and girls who first read the book of Revelation had this as a, 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 a real and present danger. The fear of death and all that leads up to death. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because I am the living one. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid, because I was dead, and I suffered all the humiliation that you may fear. 
I drank the bitter cups, the bitter cup of death to its last dregs. And that's no little trouble, is it? That, that Jesus is saying to you and to me, to those who face death and all that, that precedes it, I don't. I suffered all those things. So you're not going to suffer those things alone. I went through those things as well. We can be greatly comforted by the fact that Jesus has already faced those kinds of things. Yet Jesus goes far, far beyond. Because he says, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. Now from time to time, people ask, we hear all about the resurrection of Jesus, but weren't there other people who were raised to life before him? There was Lazarus, there was the widow of Nain's son. So, you know, so, so what's so special about Jesus and his resurrection? Why do we talk about it as though it's the first resurrection when there were other people who were dead who came alive? Well, there is a quantum difference between Jesus and Lazarus and Jesus and the widow of Nain's son and Jesus and those others who were brought to life by himself and by some of the prophets of the Old Testament. You see, Lazarus was not resurrected as such. He was revivified. His life was returned to him temporarily. He came out of the grave, but then he died again. He escaped the monster's tentacles, as it were, the monster of death, only to be recaptured by that, that, that monster. But when Jesus said, I was dead, but now look, I'm alive, what he's saying is that the monster of death has been slain by me. Death has been destroyed by me. In 1647, the great Puritan, John Owen, wrote a book, and you don't even have to read the book to benefit by it because the title is itself is just so brilliant. The title itself is an immense help. And the title is this, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Just ponder that sentence, that truth. The death of death in the death of Christ. That when Jesus died, death itself was put to death. And so can you hear what, what, what our Lord is saying to those Christians who first read the book of Revelation, who faced death and who faced all the humiliation, the ostracism, the hardship leading up to death? Jesus said, I was dead, but now I am alive forever and ever. And, and, and so death is turned around in Jesus to become a victory. And all those awful things that can happen leading up to death are turned around and made into a victory for Jesus' people. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, 
or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The elders of the church, we see a lot of suffering in this church. We are seeing a lot of suffering in this church. And we're probably only seeing the tip of the iceberg. But we also see how suffering is strengthening people, how suffering is growing people, how suffering is turned around in the hands of Christ to become a blessing to other people, a support and comfort to those around us. We are seeing with our own eyes what Jesus promised, that we don't have to fear death, we don't have to fear the awful things that lead up to death, because in his hands he turns them around and turns them into a blessing for us and for those around us. Do not fear, because he was dead, but now he's alive, and he's alive forever and ever, and so the same is true for you. The same will be true for you. And the third reason that our Lord Jesus gives us for not fearing is this. Do not fear. We see this in verse 18. Do not be afraid, because I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, if you hold the keys for something, what does that mean? If you're given the keys to the car, well, you've got control of the car. If you're given the keys to the house, you've got control of the house. You own the house. It's your house. You own the keys. You decide who comes in, who, who goes. Now, Hades, in Greek mythology, was the place of the dead. And when the Jewish scholars of the 3rd century BC decided to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, into what we call the Septuagint, they translated the Hebrew word Sheol by the Greek word Hades. And so... When you read about Sheol in the Old Testament, it's the same as this place, Hades, in the New Testament. Hades is just the Greek equivalent of Sheol. Now, what is Sheol? As we read about Sheol in the Old Testament, we see that sometimes it it refers to the grave, that place under the earth where the body was. And sometimes it refers to a dark place of shadows where the soul goes. So Sheol, Hades, it's the place of the dead. It's a place where people are separated from the living. It's important to understand this, this little bit of background. It's important to understand because if if Jesus says, I hold the keys to Hades, well, we need to know what Hades is. And it's this place of separation from life. It's the place where the dead are. Now, I want you to notice something very, it might appear to be a trivial detail, but it's vitally important. Jesus doesn't say, I hold the key of death and Hades. 
kind of lumping death and Hades together. I hold the keys of What does he say? I hold the keys. Plural. Death, I hold the key to that. Hades, I hold the key to that as well. There's a, a separation of death and Hades. But Jesus owns the keys for both. And what does he mean by that? Why does he, why does he make that distinction? What does it mean that he holds the keys for death and Hades? Well, when he says he has the keys for death, what he's saying is this, that he owns your death. He owns your death. It belongs to him. It's under his control. I've got the keys to your death. It's under his control. And it means, when he says, I have the key to Hades as well, what he's saying is, I have the, I have the key to what happens to you after death. Do you see the distinction? He's saying, I own your death and I own what happens to you after you die. Both of those things, I have the keys to. They belong to me. They are under my control. Now let, let, let's think carefully about this. Jesus says that he owns the keys to your death. What does that mean? That means that he determines the time of your death. He determines the place of your death. And he determines the way you die. This, is, this might be sounding a bit macabre to some people. I didn't come to church today to death ran down my throat. Want to sing happy songs and have a nice cup of coffee and a scone with cream and then leave whistling a happy tune. And the preacher's banging on about death. This is so important. This is so important because the first readers of this book were facing very uncertain deaths and violent deaths, and horrible deaths. And it was a very real possibility. And they were seeing brothers and sisters die. They were seeing parents, children, loved ones, dragged off to horrible deaths. Can you see how vitally important it was to hear these words? Jesus is saying, you are seeing your brothers and sisters die in terrible ways, but I own their death. It's not outside of my control. I own the keys to their death. It's me who determines the when and the how of all of my people's death. That's why in the book of Deuteronomy, God said to Moses, God God knew exactly the moment that Moses would die. He said, go up with the mountain, you're going to die on that mountain. He knew the moment and the place of his death. And the Lord appointed Elijah's death. And that's why I had Joe read that magnificent passage from 2 Kings. Isn't that a glorious passage where Elijah when his time is up on this earth, God sends 
the chariot of fire, the horses of fire, to come down and to collect Elijah at precisely the time and place of God's choosing. That's what it means when Jesus said, I hold the keys to your death. I decide. It's not the Roman government. It's not violent people. It's not people who hate you who decide. I decide. The time and the place and the means of your death. The Lord appointed the time and place and means of Stephen's death, didn't he? And we know that because at the moment Stephen died under a hail of stones from the Jewish authorities. Where was Jesus? Standing to receive him. Waiting to receive him. Because he holds the keys of death. And he had appointed that Stephen's death at that time and place and in that way. The Romans believed in what they called the Patria Potestas, the power of the Father of life and death over his children and over his slaves. And in theory, a Roman father had the power of life and death over his children. He decided whether they lived or died. Not just in theory, in practice as well. Roman fathers decided whether their newborns would live or die. And the Roman government wanted all people to think that your life is in our hands. We choose whether you live, we choose whether you die, so you better obey us. You better be frightened of us. Because we have your life and your death in our hands. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I hold that key. That key is mine. And not one of my people will die until I decide. And so the death of every one of his people, he takes and he owns and he uses for his glory. It's not old age brothers and sisters. It's not a heart attack. It's not cancer. It's not an accident. Ultimately, it takes us from this world. It is Jesus Christ in his perfect time and place and way. Today we remember the first death of our brother David Cleves. And we mourn with David's family today. So what a death. When he died, he set an example to me and to so many of how to die in the Lord. With faith, with no fear, there was a courage that came from knowing that he was in the hands of Christ. His life was in the hands of Christ, and his death was in the hands of Christ. And his death was used to strengthen and to encourage so many. That's because Jesus said, it's in my hands. I have the key. Don't be afraid of death. He's got the key. And he holds the key of Hades too. The, the, the realm of the dead. The place of the dead. I, I, I have stood gazing at the graves of my ancestors. It's a sobering thing, isn't it, when you stand looking 
at the graves of your, of your ancestors and see their names under, and you know that their bodies are under that dusty ground. And you have a, a, a very deep sense of, of there is a life gone, and there is a body trapped under the ground in that grove. It looks so final. But Jesus says, no, that is not true. I have the keys not just of your death, but of what happens to you after you die. I have the key to Hades. And I can unlock the place of the dead and free you. And that's exactly what he promises to do. And that's exactly what he does. He unlocks his people and frees them from the grave. And so if death is the worst thing that can happen to us, even that, says Jesus, is in my hands and in my care and I will raise my people to life. Like me, they will live, and they will live forever and ever. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so we finish chapter 1. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I hope you have been listening not to the person standing in front of you, but the to Jesus Christ. Because he is saying to each and every one of you, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid for yourself, for your church. The only thing to fear is fear itself. Because he walks among the lampstands, he's, he's with his church, he's present, and he holds the future and well-being of the church. He's right hand. Do you believe it? Do you believe that he has written your life and your future and that it is a good future? If you belong to Jesus Christ, it is good. It's hard and he promises many hardships, <coughs> but it is good. Do you believe that he's the living one? Do you believe that he died, but now he's alive forever and ever, and that the same is true for you? You belong to Jesus Christ. Do you believe that he holds the keys of death and Hades? That even your death is in the hands of Christ. And that death will not be the end. He will unlock the place of the dead. He reunites you with your body. Do not think that you will have some bodiless existence in heaven. No, you'll be reunited with your body. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Because this is me. For better or worse, this is me. God made this, and he made the visible part and the invisible part, and he will reunite them both 
for eternal life in his presence. So let's let go of fear. Let's let go of it. And put our trust in our Lord Jesus, who holds our future in his good and strong hands. Let me pray. Father, I want to pray in particular for for parents here who uh, regret mistakes they've made and who fear the the consequences of the mistakes they've made. And I pray that you might free them from that fear. Yes, we regret. Yes, we are sorry. Yes, we repent of our past mistakes. But we're not going to add to our past mistakes by not believing you when you say that our future, the future of our children, is in your hands. And Heavenly Father, I want to pray for our young people. And death is a myth. It's something that will never happen, it's so remote. But I pray that young men and women here, boys and girls, will put their hand, their lives in the hands of Christ today. He's good and, and loving hands. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love our children, you love our young ones, far more than we can love them. And I thank you that you have a good future written for them. And Father, we join together today to pray for current priests and family. And we thank you again for the life of our brother David, who passed away this time a year ago. And we thank you that he is with you. Hades has been unlocked, and he is alive with his Lord and Saviour. We rejoice in that, and we pray that this will be a comfort and solace to the family in this day of death. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mighty word, which is a light into our path. I pray that we might take it and believe it. And live according to it. Amen.